0: Welcome to Paradigm Swap. I am Chaz Hathaway, author, musician, amateur ecologist, a permaculture designer, Jack of all trades, and probably master of none. So I'd like to spread myself thin. That's just how it works. And in that vein, I'd like to talk about something that I've not really touched much upon before. And it, you know, I guess it's come up a little bit. In some of the religious things that I've talked about, some in the spiritual things, a near-death experience type stuff, um, and, and a little bit in permaculture as well. You might say it's a it's something that kind of taps into each of these fields, but it's something that I think is worth talking about simply because of have, because this having this paradigm seems to open the mind to so many possibilities and so many ways of seeing the world in unique ways that can be so beneficial in so many ways. Anyway, let me just get to it, okay? Let's talk about life. And by that, I mean life forms, okay? What constitutes life? If you Google define life or, or what makes up Life, what constitutes a living species versus something like a rock, okay? Who can measure exactly the difference between life and non-life? And when you think about it in terms of non-life or something that is not living, um, just using the word non, non non-life, for example, uh, implies that it's not something measurable at all. It means that you've lacked measurement of it. So, if you think about, for example, um, space and you're talking about light, you don't measure darkness by how much darkness there is. You measure darkness by how little light there is. So, basically, what you're really doing is measuring how much light there is. And if there is absolute, utterly, entirely, zero light, then you have darkness. Now, we don't think of darkness that way because you step outside at night and it's dark. And we say, this is darkness. But really what it is, is a very low level of light because we have never experienced anything um, even very close to absolute zero light. I'm not sure it's cap- that we're capable of that. Now, scientists may say, oh no, we've got this chamber that can make it possible to shut out all light and, and so forth. But the problem is our hearts are still beating. We're emanating some level of heat, which means there's some level of ultraviolet or, um, you know, whatever light that comes out from the heat of our bodies. And maybe our eyes are not sophisticated enough to even to be able to detect that. But it doesn't mean that there's not heard that there is no light there. It just means we can't detect it. And when we're not detecting light, what we're seeing is these splashes of of visual cortex um, feedback loop, if you will, that actually look like some weird form of light. So we're still perceiving light even when we're not able to detect it. Okay. That sounds silly and and it sounds like I'm on a tangent, but I'm I'm coming to a point here. The point being that there's nothing that we as people are capable of you nowhere know, we are able to go that we're capable of going to experience pure darkness. Everywhere we go, there is light. Now, again, darkness is not something that is measured. Light is what is measured. And so long as there is light there, then there is not absolute complete darkness. Now, I think of life and lack of life similarly. Okay? Anywhere where there seems to be lack of life... It is simply that a a shortage or less life. I'm not sure there's anywhere on earth and maybe scientists could correct me but I don't think there's anywhere on earth where there is simply no life at all. Maybe maybe there are scientific, you know, chambers that uh, few of us would ever be able to encounter where there is no life. But even if you were to enter such a place, if it didn't kill you, you would be emanating life, both your own, just of itself, life, as well as all the bacterias and and whatever, you know, tiny, microscopic... Um, organisms that are on our bodies, those tiny spiders that are so small that they can fit in and out of your pores, whatever. We're emanating life. We're absolutely full of life. Now, even taking that further and saying that, uh, and, and, and going back in time, okay, let's take an evolutionary standpoint. Now, I recognize that some of my listeners don't believe in evolution. Some of them do. Those who don't believe in evolution, it is usually because you believe in a greater spiritual power. And within that realm, there are plenty of evidences, both from near-death experiences, from religious writings, and so forth, that suggest that all things have some form of life. So we're kind of jumping the gun in believing that. And I say we in the sense that I have mixed feelings and thoughts about evolution. I do believe generally that evolution is how life was created. However, I'm reserved about it because of my spiritual beliefs as well that God is our Father, that He created us, and so forth. And, and you know, so I, I guess you could say, it's not that I'm on the fence on it, but that I've I've been on both sides of the fence. And while I still have a lot of questions that I don't have answers to on both sides of that fence, I can see pretty strongly both sides of this issue, you might say. Okay, so... So, from the spiritual side, there is plenty of evidence that all things have life. Now, let's look at the evolutionary side, where there is biotic and there is abiotic aspects of any ecology. In this case, the earth. Okay. Even going back in time through evolution from the point or from from where we are now going backward in time shrinking species back to their origins and back to their origins and back to their origins then we have so many billions of years where it's just bacteria and similar microscopic organisms on the earth and they are adapting to their surroundings Uh, based on where they are, and then keep going back all the way to that primordial soup where chemicals of certain elements and certain proteins and so forth um, mix to make the first thing that we would call life, okay? That moment, I think is an important moment when we're considering what is life and what can be life. Okay, but let me pause there. Remember this moment, this primordial moment where life becomes life. Okay, just hold that in the back of your mind, put it on the shelf for a second, and then return to the modern time. We have in our society a funny word that... I want to roll my eyes at every time I hear it. It And it is the word anthropomorphic. Now you'll hear this word thrown around, especially when people try to speak of relating to animals in a way that makes animals seem more human. So for example, somebody will say, they'll see a dog rolling around in their sleep and they'll say, oh, they must be dreaming. And some people will say, well, how do we know that dogs dream? And and they could say, well, it, it, it really looks like it. I mean, he's asleep from what we can tell. You might even put science or scientists to hook up things to see there's REM going on. And and they're making these motions and and, and so forth as if they are having an experience. But, you know, are they really dreaming? I don't know. You sometimes even hear it from the perspective of pain you know they're suffering they're in pain that's a level that most of us have come to accept when an animal you know gets hit by a car and it limps away you we are pretty confident most of us and are pretty clear that that animal is in pain and one of the evidences of that is that we are willing to put it out of its misery which is to say it is suffering physically suffering Let's end the suffering, since it's going to die anyway. That is empathy on our part. And some people would call it anthropomorphizing, suggesting that the animal feels like we do. More often, you will hear anthropomorphic terms being used when you have something like, say you sell the puppies of a mother um, dog, let's just say, and she is acting a little bit tired-like, okay? Somebody who feels that animals experience similar to we do, say she's missing her puppies. She's sad because they're gone. She's mourning their loss. Now, there's lots of evidence to suggest that that's the case. What about when a dog is attracted to another dog? Are they feeling feelings of Twitter patient? Well, I mean, that's what we experience, so why not? Now, we can go down this this road of, of seeing what animals experience and say, okay, this is obviously similar to what we experience, and this is obviously beyond what we can possibly think that they are experiencing. You know, do they experience, for example, um, the sense of wistful nostalgia at seeing a photo of a long past time of their lives where maybe they had a previous owner or something and, and of course, you know, we kind of gathered that they, they miss their owner they they would be happy to see them again but do they ever sit and think, ah oh, I sure would love to go back there someday. And yet maybe experience some of the the feeling of, oh but I don't miss this part of it but I do miss this part of it Can animals experience all that? We don't know We don't know, but many are totally against suggesting that that's the case. And in so doing, they're saying that the rest of us who believe that they can experience some level of that are anthropomorphizing. Okay, let me give you another word that I think, I call it a word of the decade, because when I came across it, I was like, yes, yes, thank you and that is the word anthropocentric, which is the opposite of anthropomorphizing. If you see a dog, you step on its foot and it yelps, somebody who suggests, or, you know, if I say, oh, I'm sorry, I hurt you, it, that must hurt, I'm sorry. Somebody else saying may say, they're not really hurting, that's just chemical reactions based on, you know, a, a matter of needing to survive. Therefore, they, they react this way in order to protect themselves and so forth. You're anthropomorphizing by suggesting that they are feeling what, you're, what you would feel if that happened to you. That is a very anthropocentric point of view. The idea that what you experience, what I experience, is utterly unique. And nothing else can experience quite what we experience. That is a very anthropocentric idea. Now, we can take the question of what animals experience compared to what humans experience and then extend that down to, what about insects, bugs, other moving creatures that do act, but are much, quote unquote, lower life forms. You know, what about amoeba that are going about their business, cells? They have some form of life, obviously. Are they experiencing pain, hope? Fear, curiosity. Anyone who's owned animals has seen curiosity in animals. But now let's take it a level further. What about plants? What about trees? As one who works with animals, works with plants, and works with trees, I am convinced that plants experience life on some conscious level. Is that very anthropomorphic of me? Perhaps. But maybe it's anthropocentric of you to suggest otherwise. If they are alive, which we know they are, they meet the standards of what is life, then what is to suggest that they have no consciousness? Now some would suggest that without the level of agency that we have, They can't be experiencing consciousness. But then we've got to come back to the question of what is consciousness? And let's give it temporarily a very simple definition. Let's give it the ability to experience. Now, I'm not one who would suggest that my computer, which is running right now, recording this, is experiencing the recording it is running a recording it is going through all the bits and bobbles of electronic you know jargon to make up what it's doing right now but i i'm not prepared in this animal sense let's put it that way to say that it is experiencing it is just functioning it's a, a a giant Rube Goldberg machine that is just one reactions leading to another leading to another. It's not a living conscious thing but animals on the other hand, I think most people and scientists would be comfortable saying that animals are experiencing that that they are having some level of experience, if you will. Now, what about plants? I think they are having an experience from our perspective. I suspect it would look or feel very quiet and meditative, almost like pseudo sleeping. Have you ever had where you are mostly asleep, but you're enjoying the sensation and you're not really thinking thoughts, but but there are things happening um, in your experience that are not really things. If that makes any sense, I don't know if that is what plants are experiencing, or if it's something totally different but I have a feeling that they are experiencing on some level. And I think that's probably the case with bacterias, amoeba, single cells, everything. I think there is some level of experience taking place. And I would call that consciousness. So let's take that back. Okay. And I will be fair enough to say that As we move back through evolution, that experience changes and becomes less informed experience and more just intuitive sense of being. So with each new sense that we obtain or get stronger versions of a sense, we have more to inform that consciousness, more to inform what that experience entails. But strip away our senses. Let's just say you have somebody born without any ability to touch, taste, smell, um, hear, or see. They have none of that capacity. Do they not experience at all? Of course not. They do experience. They just experience a more quiet being that is obviously not informed by the senses, but it will be informed by other things. And eventually, even without being informed by anything, there is deep down some level of experience. I'm suggesting that life going back through evolution always has some level of experience. And lest it sound like that experience reduces as you go back. Consider someone who is blind. Often, their ears compensate. And someone who is, is deaf and blind is compensated in other ways. Look at somebody like Helen Keller, who came up with such beautiful, remarkable things, words, ideas, thoughts, feelings, contributions to society beyond what the average person ever will contribute. And I think it's very much in part because she lacked those two major senses that inform so much. Now, if you strip those senses away one by one, and they are somehow compensated for in other levels of consciousness, then we might go back to the level of the simplest algae plant, this a single living form of it. And it may be experiencing something deeply profound from what we would consider um, consciousness because it lacks so many other senses. Now, plants do have other senses that we don't have. And so, there is more experience being informed from that. And so that's a difficult example. Remember that algae has, has evolved just as we have alongside us throughout the millions of years since life formed. And so it does probably experience on a, on a more sense level than you know we may give it credit for. But even going back, even going back to those first amoeba, first cellular forms, the first bacterias, the first, even back to that primordial moment where life happened for the very first time. And I have a suspicion that it wasn't a moment, like a bing, there it is. But let's just go with it for a second, okay? Even in that moment, those chemical reactions, those those proteins may have had some level of experiencing. And I don't think it was that one moment they were not experiencing and then the next moment they were. I think it was more that these two or five or however many chemicals they were, elements that were together, were experiencing, they're experiencing And then all of a sudden, there is this new sense. And that sense is that measurable quality that we would now call life. Now, if that's the case, if that is the case, then every element has some level of experience going on. Which means they have some level of consciousness. Now, I recognize that this is a thought experiment, that it's not something that can be easily measured uh, by the scientific equipment that we have, let alone, you know, uh, with what samples we have to work with going back through the history of time. Because remember, again, every life form that is alive today is an adaptation from earlier forms of life, making them all on one level equal plane. Because we've all made it this far. These are the winners. These are all the gold medalists. Okay, we've got animals like the dodo bird that made it up until a hundred something years ago and and it's maybe in the silver, you know. I don't know how you want to measure that but um, and we probably can find samples of dodo DNA to experiment with, to test and so forth. But you go back a couple hundred years and suddenly it gets harder and harder until um, there are many, probably far more species that have ever lived that we will never know about than there are even living today. That would be my suspicion. I obviously can't know for sure. But the, the point is, is that if consciousness is what makes up life, and if consciousness exists in every form of life, and if we evolved going back all the way as we discussed, then it is totally plausible to expect that every element that led up to life would also have some level of consciousness, which would suggest that perhaps every element has some level of consciousness. Now it gets complicated when you look at, I mean, if you were to just randomly pick a dog and say this is one life form, well it's not one life form. The dog is one life form himself, but he's also got all kinds of microscopic creatures within him, let alone all the cells that are considered alive within him. They're reproducing independent of the dog, so to speak, and yet dependent on him. So, you know, it's like every life form is an ecosystem. So, you know, saying one life form is usually implying one organization of life forms that make up the body of one consciousness. And within those bodies of consciousness, there are smaller bodies of consciousness making up those bodies. That's just, I mean, whether you want to call them consciousness or not, you could call them life forms. And then we've, you know, we're talking about something that science very well knows and would acknowledge any day of the week. But of course, most would not call the individual elements life forms. And honestly, the biggest reason for that is that we have no tool for measuring consciousness. We just don't have a tool for it. And I suspect that all the various levels of consciousness that we could find in animals would make it so even if we had a tool to measure it, eventually, you know, we'd go back far enough and find that we can only measure it to a certain extent, just as our eyes can only measure certain wavelengths of light, or our instruments can only measure levels certain levels of heat or temperature because at some point they become too cold and stop working or heat up too much and melt or burn. That's kind of the technological limitation of every tool that we have. But we don't even have a tool to measure consciousness. And so you get these debates about what consciousness is and, and is it something outside of the body and all this stuff. and. And those debates will continue until we have such a tool. But in the meantime, we have to work with what we've got. And we have to think of things based on what we got. If we simply wait to even consider things until we have the tools to properly measure them, well, then we're going to be limited in our ability to think our way through complex issues. Anyway, um, why do I bring up this idea of everything, every? single element, every rock, every tree, every planet, every atom in the universe at some level being a life form, or containing life, or being the vessel of a conscious life. Why do I bring that up? Because when you start to look at the world around you as a conglomeration of life forms, you start to see it differently you start to think differently about it and i'm not just talking about that level where you yell at your car and kick the tire and so forth you're it's not like you're trying to actually communicate with your car though m- many of us would absolutely love to be able to talk to our cars and say you know what is your problem <laughs> or What can I do for you to help you work better? Things like that. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the level where you acknowledge life forms as things intrinsically of value or of intrinsic value. And also acknowledging that they are having experience. Boy, that that changes things. And I don't feel like it's necessary or or that it's going to make a massive difference for all of us to think of rocks for example as being life forms and and a dead stick as being life forms but i do think it could really really change things for society if we could look at all life forms scientifically you know acknowledged life forms plants animals amoeba mushrooms, fungus, whatever, as life with consciousness. Because when we do that, we treat it differently. We treat it as a fellow passenger on this strange planet we call Earth, and wonderful, amazing planet that we call Earth. We're not just the superior species. We are the uh, most recent version of a particular species. A dog is another most recent version of a particular species. A single-cell amoeba, whatever single-cell organism, is the most modern version of a particular kind of species. And when we see it that way, we begin to look at the world not just as this big, mass of resources and pollution and junk and parts to be exploited to our own ends, but rather as a massive, incredibly complex ecosystem that we are all a part of, that we are all participating in, and that we all have great responsibility to understand, protect, and even sometimes direct. But there's a huge difference between directing uh, an ecology and destroying an ecology, or even out of ignorance, moving or changing an ecology. Doing anything where you don't know the consequences is simply acting out of ignorance, acting out of, a lack of understanding and when we understand the life around us how it works what it wants what it needs we start seeing things in a very very different light i would recommend the book this the, it doesn't go into this level of of detail or thought experiment and so forth but it does help us see our own homes as ecosystems of life okay and the book is called never home alone from microbes to millipedes camel crickets and honeybees the natural history of where we live and it's by rob dunn basically it's called never home alone if you just google that you'll find it but it's by rob dunn in case you want to be sure that you're getting the right one it'll just illustrate to you how a little bit of how this works. There's also another book I would recommend called The Secret Wisdom of Nature, Trees, Animals, and the Extraordinary Extraordinary Balance of All Living Things, Stories from Science and Observation. Basically, The Secret Wisdom of Nature, and that is by Peter Woolabin. And I'm not entirely sure if I'm pronouncing that right, Woolabin, but if you look up The Secret Wisdom of Nature, it's by Peter Wohlleben. I highly recommend that book. If you really enjoy that, you'll like The Hidden Life of Trees by the same author. Now, I'm not putting this out there to to try to push for the naturalist uh, viewpoint, which I do consider myself a naturalist, amateur as I may be. I consider myself one who's deeply interested in nature and ecology and so forth. But that's not my point here. My point here is to help to provide you with a framework to develop the mindset that the world around you is alive. And the better you understand the life that is in the world around you, the better you understand the world around you. And not just in its natural terms, but in terms of the air that you're breathing, in terms of the food that you eat, in terms of the way you interact with other people. I mean, the COVID-19 pandemic taught us a new way of looking at how germs spread and how we interact with each other physically. We may have known some of the facts that we've learned since then, but we didn't see them in such visceral and personal, practical ways as we did during the COVID-19 lockdown, when we were wearing masks everywhere we went, we didn't shake hands, we didn't high-five. I mean, even bumping elbows and wrists and so forth, were or knuckles and so forth, um, became... Uh, you know, we're trying to kind of stay six feet apart. So, this space between us, we kind of started looking at the world around us differently. And hopefully, what this perspective, if you dive further into it and really try to develop this life around you, or, you know, the world around you is alive mentality, you'll develop a much healthier view of the world around you and see how much, how important things like physical contact and so forth are, but recognize when and where to avoid that same physical contact and so forth. Anyway, I do recognize that this viewpoint is kind of out there that it's uh it's one that it's going to take some time for science to be able to to recognize whether or not it actually is has has valid validity whether it could be true or not but in the meantime i think it's important that we prepare ourselves for it because the mindset that we have had for so many centuries that we are the only real living creatures and that everything else is kind of a substandard to, uh, to non-life form in some way or the other, has really not served us well. It has not done for our planet and for ourselves what we thought it would. And when we adopt the idea that, all things are living, and all things have value. It just changes the way we operate. Okay, and we will finish up today by saying if you would like to contact me, you can do so by emailing Chaz at willowrise.com. That's chas at w-i-l-l-o-w-r-i-s-e dot com. And once again, thank you so much for listening.